You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. Us standing around watching this guy stomp this kid. If I had to call it, I would probably say to death. He stomped that kid, and when he left him all alone, it was like looking at a goldfish that you dropped on the floor out of the out of the tank. That wasn't looking. He wasn't looking at anything in particular. If he really was conscious. Everybody drinking blood. Everybody eating brains. Some monster party. Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones It's a monster party Thank you for listening to episode 11 of Where is the Line? My name is Kevin, and with me again today is my friend Jamie (laughs) Ha ha (laughs) There's been some confusion through the correspondence we've been getting We have got a couple... Of emails referencing things that Samantha said, but they used the name Jamie in them. How does that make you feel? I'm fine with it, other than the fact that just for posterity, Mm -hmm. I am Samantha. (laughs) And I've been on here since episode eight. Episode eight, yeah. So uh, Jamie was uh, my former co-host. She was here up through episode seven. Uh, Her and I still get along, so she might be back one day for an episode here and there, you know. But uh, Samantha's the official co-host now. Uh, From now on until Kevin dismisses me. (laughs) I won't dismiss you. It's more likely that that you will get tired. Right. You'll just have too much Kevin. No, I... And you'll get sick of it. I know the phenomenon. (laughs) (laughs) You're familiar with the phenomenon of being around me too much. Yes. Well, I know. And the wear and tear on the soul <laughs> that happens. <laughs> but yeah, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Samantha, and I will be pleasuring you today. <laughs> pleasuring them? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I still go along with Jamie quite well, by the way. Oh, yeah, I think of I course. said that. Jamie's um, fucking rad. I don't, I don't get to talk to her enough anymore, though. I wish She's she very would, busy. Uh, she is very busy. That's why she had to put this on the burner. Uh, yeah, that's what, burner. Yeah. I wish you'd give me a call, though. Jamie, if you're listening, I miss you. He does. Now that we've established that this is Samantha here, say something disturbing, Samantha. Latex glove. Latex glove. Yeah. When you hear the phrase latex glove, honk your horn. We've got a lot of big announcements. It's been a, it's been a big month for Where is the Line. Yeah. Uh, first thing I'd like to announce officially that I will be speaking at Podcast Movement in Orlando, Florida. Oh my God, Orlando. I know. I mean, I'm not speaking in any official capacity, but I am going to Podcast Movement and I will use my voice to speak probably to somebody while I'm there. So if you're in the Orlando area, uh, let me know. Podcast Movement is going to be August 13th through 16th. Uh, If you happen to listen to the show and you're going yourself or you live around there, let me know. I'm not going to have a rental car, so you can give me a ride to your favorite bar or the gas station to get chips. Yeah. Someone please reach out to Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) We have a brand new way for you to contact Where is the Line as well. Uh, I actually 
ganked this idea from <laughs> Earth Oddity. They have their own phone number where people can call in and leave them voicemail messages. And uh, it seemed like a good idea, so I yeah. got one myself. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so we have a phone number that you can call now. Now, the thing about this phone number is I was not going to pay for a phone number, but I really wanted one that spelled something out. So yeah. Google Voice will let you have a free phone number, but they don't let you search for what they might spell out. So right. really the only thing left for you to do is to look through all of the numbers that Google Voice has available. And I used this little website where I could plug in a number and it would tell me yeah. if it spelled anything. Mm-hmm. I did this for probably three straight hours. I had no idea that you had spent that much time. I spent an enormous amount of time <laughs> doing this. So I finally found one that spelled something. Where is the lines? New phone number is 386-227-7848. That's dumbass tit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yes. Dumbass tit spelled correctly. I was not about to get some misspelled thing. Right. You know, I think that I think that the people that listen to the show deserve better than that. So Agreed. again, that phone number is 386-227-7848. That's dumbass tit to leave a message for where is the line. What's incredibly special about this number though? What's that? First of all, there is absolutely no chance that I'm going to answer this. So if you're an awkward person like I am that does not like to talk on the phone, don't worry. We're not going to pick up because we have a custom voicemail message on this created by the greatest intro man in the business. Oh, yes. The Where is the Lion intro man. Yes. I will put our intro guy up against anybody. And that includes that. Yeah, that includes that fucking old man from uh, Sword and Scale. I agree. Ours is better than him. You know, we, we there's a lot of things that maybe we don't do better than a lot of other podcasts. But I have never heard, I have never heard a hype man as good as ours. Me neither. And you can hear a special message just for you. If you call 386-227-7848, what's that spell again? Dumb ass tit. We're waiting for your message. You're welcome to try, but I cannot imagine what you could leave on our voicemail that we would feel like, you know, the show's called Where is the Line? We're not going to let somebody cross the line on the voice. I mean, like, we can't get a voicemail that crosses the line, you know? Yeah, I can't see it happening. Yeah, I mean, that can't be. I mean, the whole show is looking for the line. Yeah. So Where is the line? We I can't spend all this time looking for it and then let somebody call and leave <laughs> us a voicemail and them find the line, you know? I'm so excited. I know. I, I hope somebody calls it. I don't know. Please call. I bet we're going to get a bunch of hangups. Everybody just call and listen to like the, uh, the listen the to uh, the greatest voice actor <laughs> of our time, relate his message to them, and then they'll just hang up. We'll just get a bunch of clicks. I'll, I'll, fuck it. I'll play the clicks. So, Samantha, are you ready to get in to this episode? Yes. Let's do it. Okay. So this is going to be a really unique episode of Where is the Line. Our format's going completely out the window for this one. Shortly after our last episode dropped, we got an email from a fan of the show. The email started off not too dissimilar from the thousands of others that we get every day. <laughs> <laughs> it was from someone, a man named Ryan Martin, who said that he enjoyed the show. He really liked it. He was a big fan. He enjoyed our theme song. And also that he one time had a cellmate who... Cooked and ate his wife. Indeed. Yeah. And then uh, just uh, keep up the good work. That's really nice. 
<laughs> so obviously, you know, I, I had to follow this up because yeah. you cannot you cannot send me an email where you tell me that you knew someone who cooked and ate their own wife and then just say, all right, see you later. Exactly. So I got in touch, which, by the way, if you email us, we will email you back probably to a creepy degree because I've, I've done that several times. We've probably lost fans because of how much <laughs> I enjoy corresponding with people. But anyway, <clears throat> so I write Ryan back to say you can't just throw in there. Yeah. You had a cellmate for one thing that ate somebody, number two. And so Ryan and I start having this correspondence back and forth. And uh, it turns out Ryan's a super cool guy. Yes. I really like this guy. Me too. He, uh, we're even Facebook friends now. And I don't even mean our where's the line page. I mean, like, we're legit my personal Facebook. We're friends on that now. Aww. He's drawing me a picture, too. He's a really cool guy. So Ryan spent some time in Jackson State Prison. And while he was in prison, he was writing these uh, sort of essays to a friend of his who was then posting them online in the form of a blog. Uh, Ryan sent me a link to this blog. And as soon as I started reading this, I started getting really suspicious of this Ryan Martin guy. Mm -hmm. First of all, Ryan had told me that he had dropped out of school in the ninth grade. Yeah. The thoughtfulness and would you describe it literary language, poetic language? Yes, very much so. Brutal, but quite literary type language that's being used in this blog did not strike me as something that would have come from, one, somebody that dropped out of school in the ninth grade, and two, somebody who said that they had four felonies and 13 misdemeanors. Yeah. So I ran the entire thing through the same plagiarism detection software that colleges and universities all over the world use. The excerpts from that blog do not appear anywhere else. So this writing is definitely original. Yes. So once I was satisfied that this writing was original, I then got suspicious that uh, Ryan Martin might not have even been an inmate, that this might be one of these college kids that goes through one of those schools where they let you make up your own curriculum. <laughs> and so I had his criminal record pulled from the Michigan Department of Corrections. As it turns out, this guy does actually have four felonies, 13 misdemeanors. Yeah. He did do his prison time. Yes, he did. Um, and on top of that, you know, through the correspondence that we had with each other, he was incredibly willing to send me any and everything <laughs> That might confirm parts of his story. So he has sent me so many pictures and so many documents that, that verify that the things he's about to talk about really did happen. And one of the things that's striking about this guy is when you talk to him, maybe this is also going to happen to you when, you when you listen to this, is that he's funny and personable in a way that he will relate a story to you where, for example, he kicked someone's head into a car wheel and essentially scalped the person. And he relates this story to you in such a personable way that you almost forget that the person telling you the story is the one kicking the guy in the head in the story. Yes, I know. You know, I didn't know what to expect. I was very apprehensive about doing this. And then once we started talking to Ryan, I was just like, I can't believe I was freaking out because this guy... Is a really cool guy. And then, and you know, also, uh, because you had expressed in private to me that you had asked me, this guy is not going to come down here and kill us, is he? Right. 
And by that point, <laughs> you weren't seeing the correspondence that I was having with Ryan. Yeah. Uh, and so I actually told Ryan, Samantha's a little bit afraid that you might kill us. So feel free to have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, what you're about to hear are excerpts from a lengthy four-hour conversation that we had with Ryan, interspersed with quotes read by Ryan of excerpts from his essays from prison. I wasn't sure what an addiction really was, but I knew in my soul that drug use at its base was at least romantic. I really thought this, and I still kind of do. I've always been drawn to filth, to degeneracy. I've always thought that this, people at their most mad, was the place where we do our purest living. So you started doing drugs. And when I say you started doing drugs, I don't mean you were smoking pot like the rest of us when you were 15. (laughs) I mean, you started doing morphine at a really young age. Can you tell us how old you were when you started doing that and how it progressed kind of over your teen years, kind of leading up to your 20s? Yeah, certainly. At at that age, you know, I was getting in pretty significant trouble. I think I had I had already been in and out of a, a couple foster homes. I uh, was already in a self-contained classroom. How old were you at that point? I was I was almost 15 because starting at 6th grade, they I was considered such a behavioral problem. They put me in what was called a self-contained classroom, which is for kids that just can't get it together. And you wouldn't switch hours and stuff like the normal kids. You just always stayed in this one classroom with a teacher that was trained to, you know, handle problem kids. But so anyways, I was doing the same thing as the other teenagers, you know, drinking a little here and there, pot here and there. But a good friend of mine, him, his brother and his mom had this form of rickets. And so this Mm -hmm. rickets made them look like midgets, even though they weren't. And it was it was going to kill them eventually. So but mom had really progressed. And so she was prescribed liquid morphine morphine pills, uh, just everything you could imagine. You know, just as kids, we tr- we tried it and it got us high and it was enjoyable. So we were like, fuck it, let's take it tomorrow. Yeah, let's take it tomorrow. Not even like had a pretty good idea of what addiction was. You know, I wasn't four. I, I knew what addiction was and had heard of it and, and knew what could happen, I guess. But I guess I didn't know how serious it was, how fast it could happen. Or what it really entailed, if that makes any sense. So yeah. we were taking it out of fun, thinking, oh, man, you got to, you know, you got to take heroin for years to be an addict. Or you got this. I mean, we're just taking morphine. And then we quit taking morphine and get sick. And like, oh, fuck. You know, it took a while to realize that that's what that was. And then after that, you're you're in it. She was slicker than owl shit. She would take a trick behind the water heater downstairs in the basement. She would kneel down in front of him and as she started to unzip his pants, she'd start to cry. I mean, really turn on the waterworks. She claimed this was her first time, that she didn't know if she could do it. Half the time the guy would run off embarrassed, leaving her with the money. The other half she'd just get slapped and have to work. Either way, she cried, but 50% is good odds, workable odds. Around 15, you start doing morphine. When you're about 18, you moved to East Detroit to be closer to a girl named Yep. And 
ran a sort of an underground brothel. Mm-hmm. And you were hired as kind of a bodyguard for the prostitutes that were working there. I guess, how did you know and how did you decide that this is what you were going to do when you were 18 was be a bouncer at a for prostitutes? <laughs> yeah, uh, was a girl that I had known for a long time through school. She'd hung around with us and she was wild. She was always wild. And her mom had MS and had a two-family flat in Ferndale. And her mother died and left her that flat. And at that time, was a few years older than me, three or four. And she was already pretty well into the dope scene. She had been probably addicted to heroin for a few years already or whatnot. I think she had already been dabbling in prostitution and stuff to get dope. Uh, she was real wild. And when she got that house... I don't think she ever had plans to set up something like that. I think she just had friends. A couple of them were dancers and a couple of them were friends from their friends. And it kind of snowballed as it went. And she just had these girls working out of her house. I would go there just to get dope from her guy. It was amazing. She was like this. She was just like this fucked up piece of shiny something that had just been always kicked around so goddamn much but she was just so fucking wild this broad would pull guns on people and all the drama (laughs) and all the wild spitting and snarling and like cats in a bag and all the time and then she would settle down and fucking you know the you know the broad had read Nietzsche too and this and that and she could have these conversations and we'd sit and talk for so she was awesome she was great and uh and she go and she asked me all right well I need somebody just to drive the girls to their dates. And I was like, I'll, yeah, I'll do that. That's, that's what started it. And it wasn't the, I guess the job was never at first. Uh, I want you to watch out for these girls. And if anything happens, you take care of it. It just started as a taxi service. And I started getting really protective at that time. I, you know, at every party we were fist fighting. I mean, so she knew how violent I could be and and she had seen some pretty gnarly things. So she knew what I was capable of a hundred percent, but that wasn't what, what she, what she asked me to do. I took that on myself as just as, you know, you get around, you're around these girls for so long and you're living with them. And like you, it's the weirdest thing when, you know, these, you know, and these broads are walking around and their, their tits are hanging out and they're talking like locker room talk. And you're sitting there and you're like, what the fuck? So you start getting protective, and uh, that's when I got the pe- the burner and started kind of taking that on. So there was never anything formal, hey, this is what you do, but it progressed to being fairly formal of that that was just an added part of the job that was more stressed than it was worth. You and I have been riding back and forth with each other yeah, a lot over the past few days. You told me a story about how that ended. Yeah. Is that something you can talk about on here, or is that? Yeah, a, uh, I, I think so. I don't uh, like. I said, I you know, she never pressed charges. I mean, she didn't die. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I told you I'd be hundred percent open and honest with. I mean, as long as it wouldn't get me in any kind of trouble, I don't think it will. But it had gotten pretty wild at that point. I mean, they were getting so much money was coming in at this point. Uh, that they were really doing everything to excess and it was burning out really fast and they were making really bad decisions. Well, we were all making really bad, really bad decisions, but it was getting real wild and dangerous. And uh, like the one girl had come in running one day and ran into the closet and a Caledonian guy come in with a pistol looking for her and stuff. It was getting real wild, but I had taken her to a hotel 
local to us that was somewhere that we went pretty normal. Usually it wouldn't even be an hour. These guys would pay for an hour or whatever. You take 15, 20 minutes unless they're smoking and stuff. But, and I sat down there and she never came out and I was like, all right, well, I'll call. No, didn't answer the phone. No, I went up there. I could hear her before I got up onto the onto that floor. I could hear her just screaming. Things were, things being thrown. I don't know if you've ever been into a situation where things get so tense that like it's almost like you got seashells on your ears and your chest gets real heavy and full and and you know things are going to happen that maybe you can't handle. <laughs> like it's like sometimes before you get into a fist fight that you're pretty sure you might not win stuff like that and. And so I, I had a pretty good feeling it was going to get serious before I got to the door. And when I opened the door, he looked up and he must have thought that it was some sort of setup maybe or something. He wasn't, didn't know that I was there ever. So when he saw me coming in, shit was everywhere. He had been kicking the shit out of her. When he saw me, he immediately asked her, bitch, who is this? Like now I'm coming in to do something to him. It was so tense. I basically pulled my pistol out and I went to, sh- I shot at him, but I didn't hit him at all. I shot her in the elbow and the ass and we were so fucking close. I, I mean, you've been into a little motel room from the door to the wall. It couldn't have been 20 feet if that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I could have threw the bullet at him and should have hit him. And, uh, but it was all like this real compressed Everything felt like I was really far underwater and compressed, and it, and I wasn't used to that kind of tension. And she, it was pretty messy, and I'm pretty ashamed of it. But I left, and I was like, "Fuck, I, ki- I, you know, I'm worried I killed her, or she's morally wounded." I was like, "I can't believe I shot her and not him." I was like, "I'm out of here." I left, and then I ended up coming back and found out that she was shot in the elbow and the ass. Detroit is also fairly weird too, where. Just because you hear a gunshot or even necessarily see somebody shooting a gun, you're not guaranteed to see an officer. Whether the cops ever even eventually came to that motel, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But I went in there and it was, I was incredibly ashamed. So I'm standing in this doorway feeling sorry for myself. And I had shot this broad. And so I felt real bad. I'm like, I'm sorry. And she was amazingly calm. She had been shot before when she was younger. And she was oh making God. me feel better. She was like, uh, she, you know, all at the same time, like, can we go to the hospital, please? Can we, can you take me to the hospital? Let's not call the cops. Can we go to the hospital? Like, I understand what you were trying to do. I'm glad you got me out of that situation, which I don't know that his, he would have made the situation worse than what I made it, but it, uh, she was incredibly understanding about it. She was more understanding than I would have been. That's for sure. But <laughs> I I was so embarrassed by that. That was the last I that was the last I may have I may have maybe taken one more girl on a date after that, but I don't think I did. I think that I'm pretty sure that was my last date. <laughs> yeah. That was heavy. Yeah, that would have been my last day too. There are hundreds of faces on milk cartons that at one time matched the scared, gulping face of a kid who just didn't know what he'd gotten himself into. When the young murder, it's more primitive than moral. It just is, and it feels that way. When you see it, it feels like a ritual in some way, like Inuits pushing the elderly out onto ice flows. How old were you when you started riding trains? Was that before or after this? Oh, that was way after this. That, uh... 
I was, I was, I guess I would have been considered an old man <laughs> to the kids I was riding trains with. Uh, I think me and Samantha both have known a lot of people who did the train ride thing, you know, and, and they were, they smelled yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, typically. But, yeah, they were generally friendly, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. They, they might do a little shoplifting mm-hmm. here and there to get by. but Or they might even steal from yeah. you, but they were still yeah, pretty nice. they <laughs> might steal from you, but they were pretty yeah. nice. But that's not similar to the right. group that you fell in. Yeah, and yeah, and you're and you're pretty much right. I think probably 98% of the kids traveling and adult, you know, the you know, real hobos and stuff you encounter are just those kids. And then there's like this scary faction of fucking wild, wild kids that are extremely violent. And, and I think if, if you talked to or directly asked any of the trained kids that you come across, if you ever do again, and you asked them about it, I think they would tell you. And there's, Oh, I did. Okay. I asked somebody just yesterday right. about it. Uh, this guy, Earl, that's in town right now, He's he travels around with his dog named Death Row. Have you met Earl? No. He hangs no. out at Egan's all the time now. I have not. Uh, he's about to leave again. He's going to North Carolina. But yeah, I, I had never heard of that. And when I got that email from you, I saw Earl out and I was like, uh, Earl. He was actually sitting on the side of the road playing the guitar <laughs> with his dog. And uh, I just sat down next to him and I started to ask him about it. And he was like, oh, yeah, man. Oh yeah, you don't want to get you do not want to get around them. So uh while you were riding on the trains, in the blog, you alluded heavily to seeing somebody get killed. Yeah. During that period yep. of time. Is that something you can talk about? Before my last ride, before before I stopped traveling, uh I had only encountered good kids, good fun kids until we we met up with these three that, that weren't, they were, they weren't as violent as the ones I met from West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to those in a minute. Cause I know what you're talking about. They were real violent and they kind of made their way and labeled themselves as a train, a train gang. You know, that's, I can't remember the symbol they all had, but, and they were pretty vocal about it, open about it. Yeah. We were riding a train and it stopped. It, we were in one of the plain states. You know, they'll stop for a while sometimes here and there. And they had already been having some sort of argument for quite a while. We weren't on the same car at that time. And they had been going back and forth about something or other. And the one, the one, I think I had wrote about him, Sid or whatever. He was, that kid was something. He took kids pack, took his water, took his dog and just started beating him, beating him and didn't stop beating him and was, was doing like this, like a, like a, this mud stomp on this kid. And it was on his chest, his face, his throat. And, uh, nobody stopped it. I didn't stop it. Nobody else stopped it. Nobody was screaming. You know, usually when there's a fight, there's all this screaming, there's six or seven chicks screaming and trying to break everything up. And there's just this general melee and that wasn't happening here. There was us standing around watching this guy stomp this kid. If I had to call it, I would probably say to death. He stomped that kid, and when he left him all alone, it was like looking at a goldfish that you dropped on the floor out of the out of the tank. That wasn't looking. He wasn't looking at anything in particular. If he really was conscious, struggling to breathe, real swollen and bloody, really couldn't. 
I mean, I don't think he would have been able to tell if he was male or female at that point and was just, nobody was freaking out. Nobody was losing their minds. It was just like, eh. if that kid came back to, I don't know how he found anybody to help him from where we were. There was no roads. I mean, we were stopped in the middle of nowhere. There wasn't anything. There wasn't anywhere to walk and get help. And you guys just got back on the train and left and he was just laying there. I was amazed. It was a weird situation where I was with one other person and I didn't know anybody else very well at all. And a lot of these guys meet up with each other. They've known each other for years traveling and I didn't know anybody. And I, I'm surprised actually after this happened that it wasn't me. I was the, I was the outsider out of everybody there. So after that happened, the train didn't just like, our bus is here, let's go. That that train stayed stopped for another 45 minutes, probably. He grabbed the water in the pack and, and got that back on the train. And I think, I know I was not looking to instigate any further violence. I wasn't interested in laying next to that kid gulping for air. And I don't think anybody else was either. I, could, I couldn't tell you that's exactly what they were thinking, but that's what it felt like. And the train started creaking, heard the brakes start getting it in and we got on our trains and we went what was around that area was there i mean was this near a populated place i mean was there any chance that somebody would have come by and found him or was this just out in the middle of the woods no it it was i think we rode the train probably doing 25 30 miles an hour or so maybe the last town we we went through was probably 35 minutes behind us and i don't think we hit another town for the same or more And that poor kid was, he probably could have been maybe 17. I mean, he had obviously known those kids. He had been traveling for some years. But if that beating didn't outright kill him. How would he have gotten out of there? Yeah, I don't know how he got himself to help. And it took me a long time thinking about that happening. Of all the different violent things that I'd either been a part of or witnessed. And even at this point, I was already fairly jaded. But I'd never seen anything that violent be that calm. And I guess that's why it prompted me to write that it felt real primitive. It felt real tribalistic. And it, does that, if that makes any sense, it didn't feel like we're in this civilized society, this group, we're at this bar and we're doing this thing that we do and you get mad at him, but the group is pissed that you're there's this violence is happening and we're trying to stop it because that's what we do. In this tribe, the violence was happening and everybody watched like they were in church. Through the whole my whole experience of traveling, it was really tribalistic. Like when you when you get these young kids, to me it feels like you get these 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kids and they're on their own and there's nobody telling them what to do and they're all together, but they're apart from all of us n- normally. You know what I'm saying? They don't we don't ever really interact with them on any basis ever. They're not in the restaurants eating with us and they're not at the bar drinking with us and they're not following our rules ever. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They are making their own shit up. And even though the majority of them are great kids and aren't that violent, I think you might be, or maybe not be surprised that when things get violent, they are pretty violent. It just all seems so tribalistic and so primitive that even when I look back at it now, I feel like I don't feel as ashamed for not saying something or trying to help him as I would have if I had walked away any other scenario, place, or time. 
I'm not saying that to excuse me not trying to help this kid or do anything, but at that time and how it felt in that scenario with those kids, it was like something out of the fucking warriors, you know, <laughs> it was, that was their law. That's, you know, like, oh, like the Lord of the fly shit. While you're saying that this seemed very out of the ordinary to you, you did something very similar to someone else. You, you beat the hell out of somebody for no reason. Yeah. Yes, I did. That was after this happened, even. Like, I started to get entrenched in this this whole ideology and this whole way of living that they had, and I was enjoying it. I maybe was wrapped up in it. I was very drunk. <laughs> but yeah, we were sitting, drinking a big bottle of early times whiskey and sitting in a circle, and I was with these with these incredibly violent kids and everything was wild and just real wild west feeling, even though we were sitting in a parking lot of some store and we were sitting there drinking and, uh, these three or four, I, you know, they call them the house punks and, you know, these punk rock kids that live in houses and, and, uh, you know, the one kid, I don't know when they walked up, I just, I just did not like this kid. It was, you know, his the way he talked, the way he talked to you. I didn't like him. And he, he had those, uh, you know those typical punk rock pants? They look like they're like plaid and tight with zippers and yeah, oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying? And and he had boots up to his knees and laces <laughs> and no shirt on, suspenders and this big mohawk <laughs> and God some damn it, that SLC punk shit. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know they called them fashion punks, is what they would call them in a derogatory way. And had oogle spray painted on him. That's not a term that I was familiar with before you brought it up. Yeah, I, I think mostly, like, if you asked any any kids that train hop or that crush your kids, it's just a kind of a derogatory term for a poser in the, within their culture. Truth be told, all the way through, I mean, I think I was the epitome of an oogle. I was just wearing that jacket for a while. I knew I wasn't going to travel forever. I knew... Anyways, this so this kid come in and he was uh, the worst. I couldn't stand him. And we're drinking and we're drinking and I there was no real forethought or any. I had just gotten to that place where you're drinking and where I was getting so drunk. Just every I wasn't paying attention to conversations. I was just kind of had I don't know if you've ever gotten so drunk that you just kind of withdraw into yourself and you're not paying attention to anything around you anymore. And then you're now you're I've gotten so drunk to do all of the things. <laughs> so I'm sitting there cross legged and just stewing inside myself. And I got up and I kicked him in the face. I might have kicked him a couple more times, but his buddies got right up and uh, rushed over at me. And I, you know, at that, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to take an ass kick in. But Sid and John and fuck, I cannot, I cannot for the life of my name, remember the third guy's name, rushed over and fucking just was like a rumble in a parking lot for like 30 seconds, 20 seconds, real fast. Everybody's punching each other and everybody ran off and. It was just violent for no reason. As annoying as he was, as condescending and pretentious and shitty as he was, like probably didn't deserve to get kicked in the face. I'm really principled. I have a strict set of principles that I don't shake. I guess I'm uh, contradicting myself here by saying that I, that are unwaverable because they obviously were. I kicked this kid in the face for no reason, but that I try to keep unmovable, that I don't veer from no matter the consequence, which has fucked me more than once. And there was there was no reason, really, that he should have been kicked in the face, really. Long story is 
<laughs> it was it was ridiculous. It was reckless, ridiculous. No, I never thought about any kind of consequence being in a state that I wasn't familiar with. That, that wasn't a kick on the cheek or anything, right? I mean, there were teeth lost in this and blood. Yeah. You remember the Carolina MP boots? Zip up the side. They're uh, big full-size boots, steel toe, got a steel shank in the sole. Yeah. Kind of a frontwards horse kick. Uh, he was sitting down. Oh, my. Just kicked to the face, to the ground, and then kicked some more. You know, I just learned that in a field not too long ago. It was, yeah, it was messy and brutal and really uncalled for. It was, at the time, I didn't have any really regret about it. I didn't feel bad about it. I guess now as I get older and looking back on it, I have a regret for it in that I broke broke a principle. I woke up behind the dumpster outside of the house with my head in her lap. I had begun puking and passed out, and there, she said, she'd found me. She said she couldn't move me, so she put my head in her lap to keep the maggots off of me. She said that. I wish I had made it up. With the tenderness of a housewife who's kept her husband's dinner warm for him, knowing he'd be home to eat it, those unfailing burden duties women feel obligated to do for men. So, you're rail riding stopped in New York. You were by yourself and you came across a different group of incredibly violent rail riders. They beat you half to death. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, I could talk you right up to where I stopped remembering. I had met this girl that I was, I I guess you could call it dating. I was infatuated with her. I wrote about her. And uh, I had made plans to go meet her in New York after we caught a train back to my hometown. We were waiting for a train out, and the cops stopped us. I had a warrant, and I went to jail. So she went on ahead, and when I got out of jail, I went to go meet her. She was staying with some some gangsters that were selling cocaine, and so she told me, hey, go stay over there in East River Park. There's some other uh, train kids over there that are sleeping over there in the park. I was definitely more than definitely more than cocky, like just a ridiculous asshole at the time. So I'm in the park, but I'm by myself. And, uh, I was already aware of these guys. There was four or five of them. I was already aware of them because they had already kicked the shit out of two other kids and, and, and beat them really severely. The one kid was in Thompson, you know, I, I, talked with him in Thompson Square Park and his face was still already all still all fucked up and he's like yeah I ran into fucking blah blah I don't know that I remember what their train gang name was or whatever they're out of West Virginia and I had gotten really drunk and was in the park and they walked up and the one guy just started talking to me and you you can tell when somebody comes up and starts talking to you and you know they're not but you're not going to be your buddy (laughs) you know does that if that makes any kind of sense you know yeah. They're not there to make oh, yeah. make friends. And, and he's kind of feeling out, you know, what have I done? Where have I been? How long have I been traveling? That kind of shit. He's, he's, he's checking me is what he's doing. And, and then he starts going on this other line of questioning of, he's like, oh, you know, you ever been to jail or whatever? I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been to jail. And he's like, for some reason, he had asked me if I ran with the Aryan Brotherhood or something like that. And I'm not sure what about me gave him that impression. But I said, no, absolutely not. And he goes, well. 
he goes, can you box? I said, yeah. And then he said, could you box him to this big fucking guy? And before I could even say yes, <laughs> I took one to the face and holy shit. And me and, and this guy from the big guy or from the guy that asked uh, from that? the big guy, he was the guy was talking to me face to face. And this guy was kind of at my four o'clock and before I could even turn around and give him a yes or no fucking, I, I caught it. And I think at that time, I, I'm probably, I'm probably not quite six foot. And I was like, probably still like two forty ish. Then I, I was a lot heavier than him. And I thought myself a pretty good fighter. This guy was fucking pretty big. He was probably good six, three or four and probably outweighed me by another 40 or 50 pounds. It was a fucking well fed train kid. And, <laughs> and we got to, uh, we got to fighting. And if it, even if it had been left to just one-on-one me and him fist fighting, he would have kicked the shit out of me. Like there was, there was no, unless I pulled some sort of special something out of my ass or caught a lucky punch, he was going to kick the shit out of me. The last thing that I remember was we had each other by the throat and we're just pounding each other's faces. Like, and it was just like, you know, just that thunder and lightning and I'm, you know, just hammering back like, fucking, I hope this stops or somebody breaks this up because this is not going to end good for me. They all piled on me and it was this, like, it was a nothing. It wasn't like, like if you're knocked out or if you're sleeping or if you're dreaming, it was like nothing. I, I, it, it felt like I could that I was aware of like an infinite amount of space with nothing in it. If that makes any sense, it was the fucking weirdest thing I've ever experienced in my life and terrifying. And then I remember hearing a chick say, just leave him alone. He's dead. I remember hearing that. And, and, and I remember panicking. And uh, at this time, it, the fight had somehow progressed all the way by over by the expressway and there was an expressway and like this big huge chain link fence and i just remember grabbing those chain links and trying to get up like you got just get up you have to get up you have to get up and they saw me getting up and fucking came back and put it to me again the three or four of them jumped on me put it to me again and that time i just got legit knocked out i was knocked out it wasn't any of that fucking super philosophical nothingness it was just knocked out and then you know, then they, they took off, they left. Like, I'm just now starting to sit up, trying to get my shit together, trying to fucking remember where I'm at. I was fucking beat to shit. And I was just hemorrhaging blood. Like it was just coming out of me like a faucet. I couldn't stop it. And then I was like in and out. And I don't remember somebody called, I don't know who called the ambulance. I remember waking up in Bellevue hospital and they were cutting my clothes off. I remember yelling at the nurse, don't cut those off me. Those are the only ones I have. And then I don't remember anything again for a while. I think it was the next evening. They were like, all right, well, I had a bunch of broken ribs, cuts and fucks, this and that. But basically they cut me loose, didn't have bed space and gave me a prescription for Moltrin or ibuprofen or whatever. And that was it. Gave me a couple hours to get my shit together. It was like just this swollen mass of face and head. And it hurt to walk, to get up. And I went back to Thompson Square Park. That was the only place I knew how to get back to. I didn't write about it because it was pretty embarrassing to me at the time. Or maybe it was too embarrassing for me to write at the time. But I didn't really know what to do or what I should do or how to do it. I didn't want to give up and like call for help or anything. I was staying on this park bench for a few hours. And that kid that had the shit kicked out of him, 
before me, he told me, there's this guy that comes into the park and he'll let you stay at his apartment if you let him take pictures. And I was, first I was thinking, well, I look like a lumpy piece of hamburger. So that was kind of funny. But I also wasn't like, fuck no. I was like, let me get in the house. And another thing that made me pretty okay with it was he would apparently give you free dope. And he had give this kid a line that he was a photographer for models and this and that and whatever. I don't know. I never saw a single mile, but he did have an apartment. He took us over there. He never asked to take pictures of me or tried anything on me. He did share his dope. He was an incredibly nice guy. He was so nice. He, he gave me money. He gave me drugs. He let me stay on his couch for the night. And uh, I left the next day back on the bench and uh, that was it. I couldn't, I couldn't even sit up. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get my shit together. It was a mess. So after that beating and your stay with this guy, you decided you had had enough of the traveling life and you called your grandpa. Mm-hmm. And it seems like I think you and I have this in common where I think that we were both very heavily influenced by our grandfathers and we had a lot of respect for them. What would you like to say about your grandfather? I mean, what was he like? Uh, well, he's still alive. And my grandpa is, I'm probably biased, one of the best man I, men I know. And was one of, if not one of the only, like, wholesome, positive men I grew up with. There was always this, like, degeneracy and fucked up males and men just showing the worst men can be. And then there was my grandfather. And he he worked hard all his life. Everything he's always done was for us. Any of the situations my mother put us in he would dig a digger out of whether it's money or getting uh, away from violent situations without, without making you feel like shit for it. Mm-hmm. He was one of those men where he would come and help you because that's what you did. Not so that he can feel better or make you feel like a piece of shit. So all this fucking terrible, horrible shit I did. The only time I was ever ashamed or upset is when I knew that it would go, get back to him or somebody would know that we were related. When I called him, he just asked, where are you? And at this time, he was, him and my grandmother were probably in there. I mean, they're in there getting to be late 80s, so they were probably in their 70s, too old to be going to the middle of New York City. And he said, he just said, where are you? And uh, he came and got me. It is true that a person can get used to anything, prison being the least horrible in the grand scheme of horrible things. I think where prison fails in its attempt to rehabilitate is its misunderstanding of this most basic condition. So you went through all of this, train hopping, kicking the shit out of people, shooting hookers, having your all of this shit, but you don't go to prison until a lot later on. You spend a lot of time and uh, the Livingston County Jail that you described as, quote, the softest county jail in the fucking world. But it wasn't until 2011 that you ended up in Jackson State Prison. And that was a completely different ballgame from what you'd experienced in county lockup. 
first, can you tell us what got you sent to Jackson? Oh, yeah, for sure. I should, by all rights, should have been in prison before this, but I still had never been free longer than two years since I was 14 between juvenile lockups and that county jail. Six months here, three months there, a year, which is the longest you can do a county jail. I think I did two or three of those. And it was a very soft county jail, fairly small town. Everybody you were in jail with, you went to school with, you know, so it was not, not tough at all. You know, fist fights, but nothing, nothing big. I, a few times in Detroit jail and Oakland County jail, which is right adjacent to it. But so all, all growing up from a 14, 13, 14 on up, before I went to prison, I was on probation. I was riding with the motorcycle club at the time, and I was married to a woman I never loved and didn't really get along with very well at all. And she thought that I was having an affair. Uh, I wasn't, but I also didn't try to convince her I wasn't either. You know, so that just infuriated her. And, uh, at, I was at the clubhouse one night and there is always been, I had bar that night and it was just me and a couple of my buddies. There was behind the bar, there's a shotgun and a pistol. I sent a picture to a buddy of mine of me holding the pistol. Funny. Ha ha. I got home that night. She went through my phone and she found that picture of me holding a pistol. She was mad. And she sent the picture of me holding that pistol to my probation officer. Oh, so God. The, the most fucked up thing about that is that I went to work the next day. I got a phone call from my probation officer and I had been doing good at that time. You know, I go in once a month to take the piss and whatever. He said, Hey, can you come in tomorrow? I was like, yeah, sure. I get home and I tell, tell my wife at the time, my ex-wife now, uh, man, my probation officer called. He wants to see me tomorrow. She's like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and, oh, and she drove me there. And I oh I got God. out and I was like, I'll be right back. And she was like, okay, see you in a minute. <laughs> and I walked in there and he was like, what's this? And then I was just like, but like, I didn't know if there was FBI drones following. Like, how the fuck did you get this picture? I sent my buddy as a... Oh my God. And uh, that violated my probation. And I technically went to prison on a probation violation. Oh, dude. After all of that shit, that's what. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So much shit I should have spent years in prison for that it was, that's what got me out. A fun picture. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) And it was so, it was so, it it was so surprised on me. Like it came, it was so well orchestrated that I had no fucking idea that this was going to happen. It couldn't even, it was such a surprise to me. I couldn't have been like, it's a BB gun. Nothing. Not, it was just like, oh, you got me. (laughs) I was just like, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, that's how that happened. Hey, your ex-wife should win an Oscar for that performance. Oh man. Yeah. That was... yeah, for sure. That was that was <laughs> I mean it was shitty, but it was slick. <laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> so you get this uh uh parole violation and you talked about in the blog seeing Jackson mm-hmm. for the first time out the window of the van that was taking you there. 
Um, describe what that looked like from that van window and what was going through your mind when you saw that? Well, growing up, any kid that was a troublemaker in Michigan had already heard of Jackson State Penitentiary. That's like our Folsom or, or whatever, yeah, you know what right. I'm saying? It's this mythical mm-hmm. place that I had never actually seen. You know, I never thought to look at it on the computer, even when there was computers, you know, but I just always heard of, you know, I'd had neighbors growing up that had been to Jackson and spent 10 years in Jackson, 20 years in Jackson, and they were terrifying men. And all these stories of just how violent of a place this is and how how just horrible and depraved and just shitty Jackson is. So we got in that van and there was probably five of us and everybody had this brave face on like, you know, whatever, we're on the prison bus, let's go do prison stuff. And like, you can see that fucking building from quite a ways away. And when you drive up to it, there's no pretense. It's fucking din. It's like the beginning of the right at the beginning when Virgil talks at Dante's Inferno, like where like, here's the beginning of hell. There's some more fun stuff inside, but look at this, look at this front part for a minute. And the fucking looks like an old castle. The first thing you can see as you pull off, you see this giant wall. And and like I said, it's got such a big footprint. It's like this big, big wall. And you're like, so you're traveling down the wall for a while. Like, you're like, where the fuck is the front of this prison? Like, and you come around and you see this giant grave. There's like this graveyard. But just these, like, have you ever been in a graveyard and you see the area where all the tombstones from the 1800s and shit is? Those real basic, white fucking, Mm -hmm. like, a kid would draw a tombstone. A bunch of those. And then, you know, the fucking castle, goddamn castle pedestals, this fucking big gate. And you're like, what in the fuck did I get? Like, Like, this, this is the thing that I've been trying to do my whole career of being a little badass. Like... Like, I wanted to fucking be able to say, I've been to Jackson State Prison. Like, I wanted to be able to say, yeah, I did 10 years in Jackson. But I didn't really want to do 10 years in Jackson. Like, like right. nobody, I'd, I'd heard all these fucking murder horror stories. And, like, looking at those graves, like, some of these dudes didn't make it out of this prison. This is this is yeah. terrible. You, you know, and you go in and, and they're, they're just doing all the, you know, all the paperwork, searching you looking at your nuts and in your butthole and doing these psyche valves and uh, documenting your tattoos while one's cutting your fingernails. And, and the whole time they're making these juvenile, horrible jokes. And they're, so they're just hammering on you. And some of the guys were, were, I don't know whether this was their first offense. So they, they weren't really, really used to any of this kind of stuff. I was really used to any intake process like they're none of them are different besides the people doing it the butthole looking is across the board is that i've had my asshole looked at a lot of times i <laughs> i couldn't draw it if you asked me to but i'm sure there's quite a few people out there that could but <laughs> and then like i said the other guys were prepared that guy they found when they were doing the looking at the b-holes the guy had brought dice with them like the gold that you can have in prison is if you bring back shit that you can't get in prison from a jail so the guys are bringing back thermalized. You're a fucking rock star. Well, this guy had gotten dice and put them in his asshole, and those motherfuckers are worth a lot of money. You can't gamble in jail, so or prison. So any dice you can get dominoes and shit. But any dice stuff like that is just hardened toilet paper, and they're not fair. They're fucking weighted horrible. You can't play with toilet paper dice. So you bring back a set of <laughs> dice. They're worth a good amount of money. You know, they're 
They're yeah. they're worth they're they're small enough that they're worth enough to put them in your ass. And he got caught. I don't know. I don't feel like anybody would find dice in my ass if they were looking. I don't know what he had going on, but they found his ass dice. <laughs> and you know they <laughs> like so it was like this, a weird juxtaposition of these guys that are just you know this is a this is a thing they're used to it they're walking around that place balls swinging around it ain't shit and then you got the guy crying all in the same room you know it's 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 pretty heavy it's 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 heavy i started listening the white noise of 200 men talking yelling and screaming began to clear i could hear the black kids being tough and making fake gun sounds I heard somebody crying, hushed conversations between cells. All the voices are ghostly and skewed as the wall of the unit is only 25 feet away and directly across it echoes all conversation from the four galleries seemingly into my cell. It's a haunting sound that takes getting used to. It's true, a man can get used to anything. I couldn't sleep the first night. The noise, the crying, the worrying, I'll miss my door at chow the angle the building sits and the razor wire that makes the slightest wind outside scream like maddened banshees unable to carry away the dead. Now, 35 days in, I sleep too easy. Everything is the same same amount of tall, which is fucking forever, all the way up in the sky of rock. It's what it's meant to be, imposing. This is big, imposing walls, no matter wherever you look. And you walk into the place and there's tears going up fucking forever. You're like, oh, fucking Christ. And it's forever long. And it is the loudest place I've ever been in my life. Every one of the front of those cells is bars and everybody's screaming out of them. You're when you're in that cell, the first night you've already, so you're already sitting there reflecting on all these ridiculous decisions you made that got you in this little room. And it doesn't start quieting down to any semblance of not this din until maybe three or four in the morning. And then it just kind of starts being like this mumble of quiet. You can hear somebody crying. You can hear somebody cough, fart, fucking, you can hear papers rattling here and there, but it's all so loud and bounces off this wall. That's so close. It seems like everything's just directed into your cell. Not anybody else's, just yours. And then (laughs) each window has its own row of razor wire outside of it. And the wind blows and literally makes this, whistling like this this god awful terrifying noise anytime the fucking slightest breeze blows through that thing it's all that together is its own like what did i do what did i fucking get myself into another layer of terror on top of an already (laughs) terrifying place right it just keeps building and it just keeps building and it just keeps building and then you get used to it is that, did you want us to not use his name or? I guess, see, the, the only, only reservation I had about it was I liked him. I like, I liked him. He was a great guy. Weird as fuck. Quiet. He was a nice enough guy to me that I guess I cared whether he wanted his name out there or not. We'll bleep his name. That's, that's not a big deal. I, I had not heard of the guy, but when I Googled him, dude's got his own murderpedia page and. He's a bigger deal than I that I knew he was. This guy we're talking about was your cellmate. He at one point believed his wife was the devil, killed her and cooked her for two days. Um, wow! Yeah. And this okay. was your cellmate for yeah, a while. Yeah, for a couple so, few months. Um, you've already started, but 
continue telling us about what this guy was like. You would have never guessed, really. He was, I mean, aside from being weird, honestly, I thought maybe he was probably a pedophile. He just had that look and that feel. He was a wife eater. He, well, see, what he told me about what he did wasn't what I read later about what he did, which is what's weird because he came in and it's not like he come in and he was super vocal about what he did. He was really quiet. And he, that's what kind of why I thought maybe he was a pedophile. And finally, it has to come to the point where I need to know if you're a child molester or not. If you're a child molester, they're not treated as bad as you think. I wouldn't have just jumped on him. I would have been like, you got to move. Like, get your shit. You got to go. I don't, I'm not living with you. Uh, but I had to know. I need, like, I need to know. And he must have been asked this question before because he just gave me his paperwork. And I looked and I didn't even get into the whole case. It just said it was whatever murder it was they charged him with. And his sentence, and I was like, good enough. But then talking, I was like, so, because it, it had, you know, his victim, I knew it was his wife. And I was like, you know, just talking. I was like, oh, I was like, whoa, what'd she do? Well, I mean, what? And then that's when he just started, he just kind of started, went down this winding road. Basically, all he said was that she was the devil. He thought she was the devil. He said that he had had a head injury. It turned out later he had, that happened afterwards, I think. Something. I don't remember what the surgery was he had. I don't remember if it was before or after. But he had, I guess, something had hemorrhaged or whatever. He had a surgery. And he said, I don't know what was going on, but I thought she was the devil. He said, uh, I killed her. And he said, I only ate a little bit of her. And I never asked him if he ate her. And I didn't even know that he had cooked her. And I was like, you only, you only ate a little bit of her. I was like, why did you eat any of her? And he was like, well, I cooked her for two days. And I was like, What'd you cook her in? Like, I didn't know what, uh, where do you start your line of questioning? And uh, he wasn't really, uh, I guess at that point, he wasn't really that keen on to like getting into this whole story that he's probably at this point, probably have been forced to tell a hundred million times. So I kind of just let it go a little bit. And then over the next couple of weeks, he would, you know, we'd just be sitting there and he'd pop up with some new information. Like, well, we had the restaurant. What else was I supposed to do with her? What, what, what are you talking about, bud? <laughs> He's like, well, when I cut her, well, I had to, you know, and he would start like having these narratives that where he was explaining things that I didn't even was asking questions about anymore. I was, so I would catch these little pieces and that was super fun to me. I could just be up there watching TV and just wait and see if this motherfucker starts talking about his wife that he ate. And fucking, he would just have these little bits of narrative <laughs> that would come out. And I didn't read anything of what he really did until me and you talked about it. When I was apprehensive about saying his name mm-hmm. because I liked him. I liked him enough. I guess, see, this is where I'm a little bit hypocritical because I liked him. But I had no qualms about going on the yard and joking and talking shit about this shit he said to my friend that on the yard. So, but like, you won't believe yeah. what this motherfucker told me yesterday. You fucking. But he never he never made any mention that he had that he was smarter than he was. He still played crazy the whole time he was in there, like that he wasn't right. And I don't know if that was some sort of shield for him or whatever. But from what I read. I'm sure that he had already said that that's how he thought he could get rid of a body or get rid of one or something. But he still pretend or still held to me that she was possessed. He was sure she was possessed and never really gave me a straight answer of why he said he only ate a little bit or whether he ever really ate a little bit. I would like to think he did, but whether he did or not actually eat some of her is I guess up to debate. I 
You would like to think that he did. So. <laughs> I actually weirdly understand. It's, I mean, if you're already in the cell with a guy that that dismembered his wife and cooked her for two days, if you didn't get to the eating, I mean, what do you really got? <laughs> yeah, why cook her in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> so this guy that you were cellmates with who cooked his wife, you actually came across somebody more notorious than nope. him at one point. Um, and you didn't yeah. realize who this person was until later on, but uh, you had a couple <laughs> yeah. of cups of coffee with <laughs> the Michigan murderer, John Norman Collins. I mean, he's actually a a, a guy who has yeah. a name, you know, you know, you got the Night Stalker, the son of Sam. Mm-hmm. He has one of those names. He's oh. the yeah. Michigan murderer. Oh, I know all about him. Uh yeah. yeah, tell us about some of those conversations, what you remember about this guy. That it's weird, because even before I went to prison, I was, I've was i always been into you know, all kinds of fucked up shit, serial killers and stuff. I don't, I don't think I ever remember him being called the Michigan murderer. I think I always remember him being referred to as the Oakland County child killer or something like that. It was, but he was always kind of an off-the-radar serial killer for me, even though he was in Michigan. But the weirdest thing was, I knew he was in prison. Never thought I would see the guy. I was in a level two at the time because I had just gotten out of the hole. Was in a level two. Was literally the second day that I got yard time. I went out to the yard. There's a guy walking the track. Eventually matched paces. We talked just walking around the track shit, right? He went He went by a completely different name than what his name is. He's guy, I think, I don't know if he legally changed his name or whatever. And we we're just talking. Didn't ring any bells, didn't click. I mean, obviously, I didn't check his ID or knew what his middle. He never said anything about any of his crimes. Walked around the track for about four or five minutes. I went back in. The next day, we hit the track at the same time. I was like, hey, there you are. Hey, what's up? Just nothing conversation. You know what I'm saying? We don't know each other. We don't have any, you know what I'm saying? Just two guys on a track type conversation. I think I only saw him one or two other times. And then I never saw him again. He must either rode back out to his prison or whatever. And it wasn't for, I don't remember how long it was till I started hearing whispers of the other guys that were like, you know who that motherfucker was? You know who that motherfucker was? But, you know, and you start hearing all the gossip and shit because he was going by a different yeah. name or he was telling something. That's that motherfucker that was raping all them, blah, blah, blah. Like, who are you talking about? And they're like that that guy that was out there that kept walking around the track by himself. And I'm like, oh, that tall white guy I walked around? Yeah, that's, uh, and whatever his name, Collins or whatever. I, it still wasn't really clicking with me. And I, when I called home, I was like, hey, look this guy up. And my ex-wife at the time looked him up and, she, and I was like, holy fuck. I, I was just like, no way, no way. Yeah. I think I'm kind of famous <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but it was, you know, I I wish he would have told me. <laughs> I would have had a lot of questions. Yeah, for anybody that doesn't know, John Norman Collins was convicted. He's one of those yeah. situations where they could they got him in jail on a conviction of one murder, but it's essentially known that he murdered at least eight women mm-hmm. in very brutal fashion. That's what's weird. When I told my mom that I walked around the track a couple of times with him. She like made this like gasp and quit talking. I guess the time that he was active and stuff just coincided with my mom being his 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 thing and and the area because he was 
uh, doing it in Washtenaw, Oakland, living that little area was our area. And so right. it was before my time, but it was my mom's time when she was that age, his whatever. So she had was more familiar with this guy than I ever was. So when I mentioned his name, she was like, oh, yeah. And then she was like, I remember being told not to do this, not to go out of, you know, and all that stuff that, you know, that they tell people when they're, they think there's an yes. active person out there raping and mutilating people, you know, if you're this or that. So yeah. it was just kind of weird. One of the more, uh, me and my mom don't talk much. So it was more of a, <laughs> you know, good, good talk, mom. We, I'm, I'm glad you didn't get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we connected on something. The Michigan murderer. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about um at one point there there was a man in there with you who owed you some money and did not mm-hmm. pay up. What'd you do to that guy? Well, I mean, I dealt with him. <laughs> not uh not in a you know, somebody owing you money isn't something somebody pays with their life with, but you know, it'll be a brutal fight, brutal you try to get what's owed to you back, but you don't ever beg for anything. I shouldn't have to ask you once, you know what I'm saying? In prison, <laughs> you know, out, out here, things work yeah. different. And he did, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, uh, give me back what was owed to me when, uh, when we agreed on it. Also in those situations, it happens two ways. It's either you approach the person and you immediately start screaming and yelling and acting real tough and screaming. And that's because you're hoping the cops will break it up before, you get punched, but you've also put on this big peacock display and everybody knows you, you ain't afraid to get your shit back. Or you wait till his rooms open and you go in there and you get it in as quietly as possible. And whether, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not such a badass that I'm going into a room and I'm coming back out without having my own. I mean, you get into a fight, you're both getting hurt. You just have to be okay with that. And I've told myself, I have to be, if I'm going to play this game and if I'm going to play it this way, and if I'm going to have these principles be this entrenched in stone, I have to be willing to die in an honorable stance. As much as it sounds like some sort of uh, false bravado, maybe, or something, maybe some part of it is, I took it deadly serious, like where I was literally ready to go in your room. And if I didn't make it out of that room, I went in there for a reason and Win, lose, or draw, I, I can feel good about the actions I made and for the reason I made them. So I wasn't one to scream and yell at you on the yard and hope the cops came. I was going to wait for a hole, go in it, and hopefully grab a hold of you before you did too much damage to me and do as much as I could to you on a shortest amount of time and then get out of there. And now you don't owe me whatever you owed me. <laughs> you know, that, that got washed. So in the pre-sentencing investigation report, the prosecutor described a previous assault charge that you had as being fairly heinous. What was she talking about? And can you tell us about what happened? Yeah, that trailer park that I grew up in that I had told you about was uh, I lived there for all my childhood up until I was 18 or 19. And my mother had... uh, eventually moved out with somebody that she was with and she just left me the trailer. She said, you go out, you can live here, pay the rent, whatever I'm out. And, uh, I was, it was great. I was like, all right, sweet. Awesome. I'm 18 years old. I was working at, I was bartending at the time. So that was great. I think it was probably within five months I quit paying rent. We were just throwing these ridiculous parties and, uh, the manager of that place had just had enough. He was over it. And this guy, 
it, it's a real long story to explain the manager of that trailer park and his sons, but they were way out of line with how strict they were with this trailer park. The speed limit was a strictly enforced 10 miles an hour. You went over 10 miles an hour and him and his sons would come out and literally throw rocks and stuff at cars. It was, it was crazy. The pizza guy would only come as far as the mailboxes and he wouldn't come any farther. It was ridiculous. And because of the trailer park manager, not because of the people that live there. Yeah, correct. Right. The reason I guess he was so, so strict in enforcing, especially the speed limit was a little girl had gotten hit in there. I mean, that trailer park for since its inception was probably just filled with just people that couldn't get it together. And uh, so there was always drunk driving and stuff like that. And after that had happened, it, he lost his mind on the speed limits. But so, but this guy was just me and him never got along since I was little. I was a troublemaker, no respect for him. When I finally got evicted, we threw uh we caught we called it a fuck Roger party as his name. And it was just, we don't care if we get in trouble. We don't care if he comes down. This is the last night we're here. We had so many people in that old trailer that the kitchen floor buckled, broke somewhere in there. And, uh, and it was wild. And eventually we knew he was going to come down and he did. I was really drunk and he came down and he started screaming and yelling. I was 19, maybe 20. I, I wasn't 21 yet. And he was, late fifties, maybe 60. And he started yelling at me and I'm yelling back. And then he slapped me, slapped me in the mouth, open handed, slapped me. And I lost my mind. And, uh, and I attacked him. I, I was punching, kicking, but where it really got out of line was when he fell down, I dragged him over to his truck and he didn't have a hubcap on. And I kicked his head into the lug nuts yeah and it split his temple artery and it peeled his scalp off of his skull my roommate at the time had come over and pulled me off and and uh everybody ran when they saw that happen everybody just took off and it was just me and my roommate and the cops came and i didn't even try to run do you remember anything about that period where so you'd done this you'd kick the guy his scalp has come off and he's laying there and when, you know, something terrible like that happens, there's a period between when it happens and when, you know, the cops or the ambulance gets there. And that's always a really weird little stretch of time. Do you remember anything about that little that little intervening period? Yeah, it was really weird because even as drunk as I was or whatever, he as vicious as the wounds were and as heavy as he was bleeding, he sat right up. Uh, he sat up and was sitting there and it was flopped and my, and my my roommate went over and like put it on like it was a toupee and put a towel on him to to stop it bleeding. And I was I was like pacing up and down the sidewalk, pacing. Somebody had went up and told one of his sons and his son and come down and he immediately wanted to fight me. I was fine with that. I was like, all right well, let's, let's do this. I was like, the cops are on the way. So if you want to do that, then we got to do that right now. But he just wanted to keep barking and barking and barking. And I just didn't have the energy to yell at him in the yard. I just stood there. It was almost like I just quit being drunk, almost like it turned off. And I just stood there and let him bark at me and bark at me and bark at me. And my roommate was kind of losing his mind and was holding a towel on the manager's head. And everybody that had been at this party that had this trailer full were just gone. It, they were gone and the trailer park was out in the middle of nowhere in the woods. So it was just quiet with this guy yelling at me in the yard. And I, it, it didn't bother me. I was like, we can fist fight if you want. I'm all right with that. Or we can not. And I'm not going to argue with you. 
I just didn't have any anything to argue with them about. It wasn't, yeah, that was that was fucked up. That that went too far. But really, too, fuck you and fuck him. I mean, nothing he probably ever did in my whole childhood deserved what he got. But at the same time, at that age and and where I was right then, nothing that happened in that scene at that moment bothered me at all. I was I was okay with it. I was fine with it, and I was fine with letting the police come and get me and when the police showed up you know they came in and the and it was really weird the way the trailer park was was set up where my trailer was you could see the entrance and it and it kept spiraling in the it was like a big almost looked like if you looked at it from top it looked like a snail shell and i was in the center of it and so i saw them coming around and they had to slow down they had these ridiculously big speed bumps back there so you'd come flying for 20 feet and have to uh, stop hit a speed bump fly in for another 20 feet and going around in this ridiculous circle to get to me and he pulled up the manager's son was just losing his mind you know i you know he's upset that was really that was it the cop came up to me and handcuffed me didn't really ask me much and put me in the car and i sat there i don't we left before an ambulance ever came so I'm not sure how long it took an ambulance to get there or whatever. I knew he was all right. He ended up showing up to all my court dates and everything. I went to the county jail and it was, it was just kind of a really weird, uh, kind of a really weird period because things have been real, real chaotic and spinning and, uh, so fast for so long for, for that period of time that when that stopped and I sat in that county in that, in that holding tank, it was pretty nice. If that, it was like real calm and familiar. When I grew up in a self-contained classroom in school, they had a timeout room when you were having outbursts and this and that. You had these mandatory fifteen-minute timeout breaks in a room by yourself. And I don't know if I had gotten accustomed to that or whatever. And you put me in a room by myself that I can't get out of by myself. It's like a Pavlovian. <laughs> response where I just start, I'm just extremely calm in that situation. And, uh, but I didn't sit there and do any reflecting and, man, what have you done to yourself? I mean, obviously things got worse from that point, but you had, you had been in that county jail several times before this, right? I mean, this wasn't, oh, yeah, yeah. I knew territory. No, no, no. I think I'd already done two full years, a couple of 90 days, a couple six months, things like that. Aside from juvenile stuff, yeah. 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 So that's what the that's what the prosecutor was talking about. She told the judge that I should have never been out, let out from this incident that we just discussed. And that letting me out on the street was like putting a loaded handgun in Grand River Avenue, which was the main the main road that runs through Michigan. And I I thought that was pretty hyperbolic, but <laughs> she was angry, extremely angry that I was out to be able to do whatever more shit I was doing. What amazed me most about the scene wasn't the wounded men, but the ones watching. The exasperated and bored and irritated looks on the guards' faces. The convicts who tried to look bored or just looked outright terrified. There was no screaming and yelling. The nurses just casually walked out and spoke to the cutters by name in a kind of disappointed motherly sort of manner. The blood was immense, more from the first guy than from the puller. After a minute, it was confusion of boot prints, wheelchair tread marks, and small childlike sneaker impressions left by the nurses.
In the blog, you talked about something that you saw happen in the infirmary that came out of Seven Block. Tell us about that, because that was fucked up. The way that was at when I was at Macomb Prison, uh, those guys weren't from they were from other prisons and came in. Macomb has had Seven Block, which was really, really mentally disturbed individuals. I mean. Right, right up there with as bad as you can get with guys that had really, really bad uh, mental problems. So they didn't let those guys out often, and I think they only were letting out four or five at a time. There was never a time when they let those guys out that you weren't guaranteed to see the most fucked up thing you think you ever saw. Like a guy would fucking put batteries up his ass all the time. They would constantly, they would constantly be sitting at the picnic table jerking each other off all the time. <laughs> never failed they'd be getting in trouble for that but you get your call out for medical you go and that's the only time that different different levels can mix and sitting there one day and everybody's talking normal everybody's just sitting there and they came in with a couple guys from seven block the one had cut himself with razors and was just flayed open just wide open calm as you could be bleeding everywhere Guard doesn't care. Nurse is every is just a thing. But the most fucked up thing was the guy, other guy had already been known for cutting his stomach open and would play with his intestines. His whole abdomen was nothing but like just scar, 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 scar on top. You could see even with it open and with him playing with it, you could see just all the mass of scar on him from where he had just... And it must have been just some sort of weird impulse thing he had, some sort of something. But that they were constantly always just trying to get him to stop from cutting wounds open or getting in there or whatever. So it was just like this weird mess of they come in, one's trailing blood, the other one with his guts. And uh, it was definitely not something I was prepared for. It was, yeah. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah. Now we have approached the end of the really snowball questions. Samantha's yeah. got uh, something real hard-hitting <laughs> to sure. ask you. So, Ryan, you've written a lot about jailhouse ingenuity and how convicts will become terrific inventors and really love to make the most out of nothing. You've even detailed how to make a device that will heat water using fingernail clippers and an electrical fan cord. And you wrote that, the state will provide you with everything you need to make everything from a lighter to a passable version of a pussy. Now, how would one go about making a passable version of a pussy in prison? And what are the best items to use? Yeah. This is, I'm glad that Samantha's here because this is one of those things that I really want to know, but I would never have asked. This is, and really it's something that's joked about uh, all the time amongst inmates and stuff, even at the county jail level. But yeah. you know, nobody ever does tell anybody. I will tell you how to make a prison pussy. All right. Love it. In prison, you really have access to so much stuff. There, You'd be surprised how many things that you have access to in prison. Now, before, when you could still smoke in prison, they would sell tobacco in a, in a can, right? A bugler can. Yeah. I'm sure there was ways that they made, uh, made pussies before that. But the earliest, the earliest known prison pussy I know of is is the bugler can, <laughs> and they would take that bugler can. You take a rubber glove from cleaning, the latex rubber glove, and you go ahead and put that around the can. You know, and now you got a latex hole, and you cram that hole with whatever you want to rub your dick on. You can buy Vaseline and lotion on commissary. 
you can get real fancy. And if you work in the kitchen, you can get meat. There have been many cans with hamburger, liver, stuff like that. (laughs) Oh, man. But the ingenuity, even behind ways that you masturbate, is phenomenal. You know, there's guys that will take their... I'm sure from watching shows and stuff, you know, you've seen a prison mat. It's three inches thick or so. And they'll roll that up and they'll fuck it. They roll up a mat and you end up having a hole in the center and you put... (laughs) Yeah. Whatever you want to rub your dick on in that center and and you fuck it. And there's an unspoken rule between you and your bunkie, though same thing as a sock on the door handle. You put your towel over the window and you don't go in the house. You go find something to do. <laughs> and uh so yeah. you know, between like, you know, stuff with like masturbation that's like super personal and stuff that, you know, you joke about with your friends, but you're not telling your buddies like Man, listen, let me tell you how you want to jerk off. Listen, this is this is what you want to do. Yeah. And like that does you you're like it's uh it's real personal, but nothing's very personal in there because you're in such close quarters all the time. You can't get pornography in prison anymore, but they have still have porn that's kind of grandfathered in from these guys that had porn from years ago, and it's dwindled down so much. <laughs> Oh, it's the saddest thing in the world. There's little, these little manila folders with these, the best cutouts that these guys had. And they cherish these fucking little folders of porn. If you're lucky to be in a joint where your shower isn't just an open common area shower and you take your, your very best cutouts and you put them in a Ziploc bag, get it wet and it sticks to the wall. You know, you know what time it is, but but those those little manila folders that get rented out are yeah. like this treasure. Like there's a line. There's a line of guys like, hey, where am I? Let me get that. Oh, uh, Jim's jerking off and then Jack's going to jerk off. And then after Ralph jerks off, then you can jerk off. You know what I'm saying? And then <laughs> you've paid $5 to jerk off to, to oh, this. And, and you get it. And you're excited. You're like, "Fuck yeah! Look at that! I, I got my I got my my fold this folder that I know that I'm touching." <laughs> and I get in there and I'm excited. And you got to set up. You know, you get in your. Yeah, this is a, a kind of a fun part of prison, I guess, because you're excited. You know, you're not. You, you, you don't yeah. ever have any alone time. You don't ever have any time where you can be unguarded, really. And there, you're never more unguarded than when you're jerking off. And also. I don't know about girls, but in a man's life, you spend from the time you know that your dick does more than pee, you spend your whole entire life as a man trying not to get caught jerking off. Like, it doesn't matter what else you get caught doing, <laughs> you spend your life trying not to get caught jerking off. So you're setting up everything and getting the towel just right. Nobody can peek in any. And you got a <laughs> shared common desk. That fucker has got to be cleared off. You can't have a, another guy's pencil on there, not nothing. Every, everything's got to be set up all right. Anything but everything but candles. And and then, you know, yeah. and, and but by the time you get in there and you shut that door, that timer's ticking. Like, you have this pressure. Like, you only got so long to get romantic. And then and then you're done, and it's the same amount of shame as if you were home private. Is there a point where somebody explains all of that to you, like the towel over the window, or is it... You see other people doing it, and you just yeah. know? Or, you know, the, the person your cellmates with says, you know, when I got this towel over my window, I'm working on a <laughs> machine that I'm yeah. building. 
Or is it, do they just say, like, if the towel's over the window, I'm jerking off, don't come in here? Well, it's a mix. One, it depends on who you are as a person. Some guys are really open about, this is my first time, I don't know shit, and they ask a lot of questions. Sometimes you get really good, legit answers. Sometimes guys will be like, I don't give a fuck what you do, don't talk to me. And, like, I'm on the other end where I won't ever admit that I haven't done something before. Like, it's just a flaw I have. I... I'll go in there. I'll be like, oh, I've been to prison 700 times. I know everything in here. I know what I'm doing, even when I don't. And then I'll learn by watching. Also, like, depending on who you have as a bunkie or the people that the the smaller, you know, you'll always end up having a smaller group that you associate with. Depending on how how long they've been doing prison time, you start getting a different mentality. You can tell an older convict because he is really upfront with when you move into that cell. He's like, this is what we do. This is what time of day we do it. This is how we do it. And real blunt, real, this is how we do it. And then the younger kids just are, are a mess and it's and it's a, another ball game altogether. So there's like 700 different ways you can learn this stuff, either by asking, by watching. And the older convicts will 100% tell you stuff like, like uh, you know, and usually when you move into the house, the cell, there will be, hey, this is kind of how we work it or whatever. And then there will be when you cross a line or a boundary or you fuck up, that's when you find out that rule. <laughs> and it's usually mm-hmm. not as friendly as if you had asked. I like food. I'm obsessed with food. Kevin will tell you it, it annoys them. I was wondering, uh, did you have a go-to like recipe or concoction that you were famous for? Uh, you know, making for yourself, like buying items from the commissary or, uh, I mean, did you make a cool meal? I have participated in them. I don't think, I personally never thought they were as fucking awesome as everybody else in there seemed to. That, And these guys have these cook-up parties. It's fucking ridiculous, especially when you just want to, I just want to, I just want to really? heat up a cup of coffee. Please. And they're in their 10 minutes. They all got yeah. Tupperwares full of fucking shit and they're mixing it. <laughs> and they always, 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 they always have to say, there's always the guy, right? And he's got all the stuff and he's like, I'm the best cook and this tastes like this. Like, ah, this tastes just like a Taco Bell. Bullshit. That does not taste anything like what you're comparing it to <laughs> and not even fucking close. That tastes like you took all those ingredients yeah. and mashed them up in a bowl. And that's all it tastes like. I don't know where these guys are getting this shit from. And and I'm not going to say I haven't eaten it because I 100% have eaten it. I've eaten all of it. And I it all just tastes like you took all those ingredients and mashed them together. Nobody ever wants to do anything that's fucking... You can buy chili in a bag, you can buy rice, and you can buy tortilla chips, but nobody will ever put them three fucking things together. You want to add mackerel, and you want to put fucking pieces of this in there, and this and this. It's filling, and I guess it does that, but it doesn't taste like what you're saying it tastes like. It tastes like you put all that shit together. It's fucking (laughs) horrible. So what's life like for you now? You're out of prison now. It seems like things are going all right. Life is... Better than it's been since I literally since I can say since I've been probably ten. Never before in my life have I been this stable for this long of a period, and uh, I don't know that it's that because I've been doing it for so long now it's getting easier, or if it's just because I'm getting older and slowing down, or or what. It's a uh, this is you know fairly comfortable now. You know I don't I don't feel like I got to be out there doing all this and that anymore. I. You know, I, I enjoy my job. I enjoy my wife. I enjoy my kids most of the time. And 
it's it's not so bad. It's not as bad as I had made it out to be growing all my life. Like, oh, you fucking losers. You know what I'm saying? And I'm over here being a fucking degenerate loser. So it's it's not so bad. It's I I I'm still terrified most of the time. I feel like I'm always one bad decision away from just going right back to to uh, where I was, and also not feeling real bad about it. Like almost like that's this is that's what you deserve. You know what I'm saying? Not like oh poor me, but like you owe a lot somewhere. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not out there doing good deeds or trying to make up for shit. I always feel like it's always just one that's why i try not to go anywhere i'm the most boring person now i don't you know my wife's got to got drag me out of the house i like i don't want to go i still have a i can still have a furious temper for no reason just no reason it oh i always feel like i'm real close to fucking up (laughs) and maybe after a few more years of not fucking up maybe that'll change but so far so good Thank you for listening to episode 11 of Where is the Line? If you enjoyed the show, maybe leave us a review on iTunes or reach out to us by email like these fine folks did. Tori writes, Hey Kevin, while traveling home from college for the weekend, me and my boyfriend listened to the 10th episode of Where's the Line? Super glad y'all have made it this far. Me and my boyfriend are pretty low on funds right now, but we would love a coffee cup like you mentioned. Nothing like sipping on your favorite drink while listening to your favorite podcast. Smiley, winky face. Regardless, let it be known that Where's the Line is by far my favorite podcast ever and becoming my boyfriend's favorite and is what got me listening to podcasts in the first place. I shout y'all out on Reddit all the time because you deserve more viewers for fucking sure. Damn right. Hey, goddamn, that's... That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for keeping me entertained with the stories and your personalities. Love you guys and I'm eager for the next podcast. I actually sent Tori two coffee mugs. One for that boyfriend mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. is quickly considering us to be his favorite podcast. Maybe that coffee cup will push him over the edge. And I also had a little follow-up with Tori. It turns out that she's studying environmental science. Uh, she will one day soon be saving the honeybees and thereby saving the world. Hey, thank you, Tori. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Tori, for doing uh, good works. Should our ecosystem collapse mm-hmm. before Tori is able to save it? And should they take all of the environmental scientists and put them in some kind of underground bunker? Please remember who sent you those coffee mugs and come get us. Please. This next email comes from Adriana. Adriana writes, hey, Kevin, I absolutely love your show. I think you and Jamie are fantastic together. She's not completely wrong. <laughs> this is the first podcast I've recommended my friends and will continue to recommend. You have a lifelong listener. I hope you get some more hats in stock. I would love to get one. The fact that she mentioned the hats tells me that she was actually talking about you because we yeah. had talked about the hats. Yes, and that's how we knew that there's there's some, some people are <laughs> mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote Adriana back. Uh, I haven't heard back from her. But if you're listening to Adriana, check your spam folder. I feel like that's where most of our emails go. We got a Facebook review from Franchone. Franchone writes, my number two true crime podcast (laughs) out of the 30 I rotate through. My number one is Murder Was the Case by Lee Mellor. 
I listen to the others, but I really enjoy these. I look forward to new episodes not because I'm bored and on a mindless cycle, but because I'm truly excited about what topic is next and what might really cross the line. Out of eight episodes, I think you've only crossed the line twice. <laughs> oh, damn. That's a challenge. <laughs> you know what? I'm wondering if this might actually be the murder was the case guy just plugging his own show <laughs> in a review for hours. You know what? That's fine. That's fine. That's we fine. see you. I'll read it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can write a review for our podcast and say something along the lines of, I love to listen to your show while I'm working on my website, www.ibuildmattressesforsale.com. <laughs> I build very good mattresses while I listen to Where is the Line. They're only $150 a piece. You know, whatever. Just leave us a nice review. Yeah. You can hawk your own shit. I don't give a damn. We don't care. We'll read it anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm just kidding. I know that's not what Franchone was doing. No. Thank you for the review, Franchone. You are our second favorite fan. <laughs> Franchone also messaged us to ask what book it was that Jamie mentioned during the Catfishing a Serial Killer episode. Oh, I believe that Samantha can answer that. Oh, really? The book was Justine, written by the Marquis de Sade. It is, like I said before, a tale of incest. I'm sorry, it sounds like we're picking on French and we're really not. We're not. We love you. Yeah. In addition to uh, giving us reviews and emails, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we have a brand new way to get in touch with us. You can hear a special message from our very own intro talent by calling 386-227-7848. What does that spell again? Dumb ass tit. I'd like to give a huge thanks to Ryan Martin for reaching out to us and for talking to us and sharing a lot of things that maybe he wishes he hadn't. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. I'd also like to thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look under your bed.